Before Eric and I got together, he dated a friend of ours named Joyce. And like so many 20-somethings, they wanted to build something grand and romantic. They wanted to do it for the same reasons we all want to do big things when we're young. The world suddenly feels so within reach, so malleable. But like so many of us, when one of the many harsh realities of this world that suddenly within reach literally hatch into their lives, all the romance and grandiosity suddenly seemed at once so absurd and so much more important than ever. That bigness lies at the heart of what we Americans, in our more elevated moments, call the Great American Experiment. And like the imposition of reality upon life in Eric's 20s, it too has fleas. The reality is that we've built our ideal empires and kingdoms and societies on the backs of living stock, humans and animals, we'd been conditioned to view as commodities. Ours is a history of exploitation, a history of living stock viewed as property, and then bought, sold, and used at whims of new ownership. There is a grim underbelly to our progress and our great experiment. We exalt our empires and kingdoms, our unions, their creations and accomplishments, their expansions, and the ideals of their grand documents. But they all grew from the commodification of life and humanity. Welcome to Bestiary. I'm Meg Sipis, and today, Eric has a piece he first published in the spring of 2015 issue of a magazine called Permafrost. Back then, it was titled They Implore His Goodness. But for the podcast, we're calling it Fleas in Utopia. Looks like it's recording now. Creepy. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Fleas had taken over. So we never stayed at Joyce's apartment any longer than it took to feed her cats, change their litter, nab some clothes from her bedroom, or a black garbage bag stacked atop a bunch of old furniture, and bolt out the door. Can you just like describe that apartment before? Sure. Yeah, well, <laughs> that apartment, my mother inherited her father. He had these apartment buildings, and when he passed away, she inherited them. And the one that we lived in was this small apartment above um, an empty basement, kind of. That would have been his small store back in the day. That was a sad summer because the horses nearby, I'm pretty sure that they were like horse fleas getting in because it was super humid and hot that summer. There was a the house next door to the store building has horses and it was like a really, really hot summer and it was really humid. And that's just like when it happened, like we had our windows open or whatever. This theory, of course, doesn't make any sense. Flea eggs don't just get picked up by a breeze from a horse's back and then float along through your apartment window. I tell Joyce this and explain my memory that her mother or maybe her housemate had found an old chair or a couch on the side of the road and brought it inside. And I wondered whether this was the Trojan horse by which the fleas had infiltrated. I thought I remember you saying that you suspected the fleas came off of that. Maybe. I don't, I don't remember that like, part. I, don't, I just don't see how they'd get in through like open windows or whatever. I don't know. 
We never quite figured out how the fleas got in. So they weren't on the cat when we got the cat. Whether they came off a piece of roadside or thrift store furniture, or the neighbors somehow brought them in, or if they were lying dormant in some old clothing, or what the hell, even if the wind did indeed bring them in. The point is, they were terrible and unbearable. So when we had to go to the apartment, it was always in and back out, quick as we could move. As soon as we reached my mom's place, we'd strip in the laundry room and throw what we were wearing in the wash, rubbing feverishly at the red bites that wreathed our sock lines. Joyce was small. She reveled in smallness, made these mouse-like squeaks and high-pitched ahs at whatever she found cute or amusing. Her hair tapered from her chin to the base of her skull. Standing there in our skivvies, we took in the sudden calm of the miles between us and the plague of fleas. With her hands clasped behind her back, she rolled up to the balls of her feet, back down and up again, humming an alto range non-song. We loved music. She majored in piano performance and pedagogy at SUNY, that's SUNY Fredonia, and I had to have her play for me. I needed to know the sound of classical music bang-tapped through her slender fingers. This girl who danced to the Clash and Pixies and the Cramps, who named her flea-ridden cats Iggy Pop and Frodo Baggins, bastard offspring of Uma Thurman. She said I'd have to catch her playing at the church where she played organ. But she practiced at the crack of dawn, which in those days was unknowable to me. Someone's fantastical dream from long ago that was never real, but other people liked it, so they dreamed it too. Then they invented the workplace, and the workplace invented first shift, and I didn't believe in first shift either. So rather than get up and listen, I tried to conjure the sound in my head. But I never could mesh Bach with the Stooges, Mozart with the Violent Femmes. I wanted Patti Smith playing Chopin, but in my head, it always ended up sounding like garbled mix-up of Cher butchering Beethoven. Weed, booze, sex, music, and fleas consumed every minute of our every day. Those alongside conversations about her dream. She wanted to start a... Well, I'm unclear on exactly what it was or how it would work, but I imagine that this elusiveness, this resistance of category, is in large part what drove her love for the idea. There was that whole store building downstairs that was just there, and we, with our utopian ideals, were thinking of the greatest thing to do with such a space. So what we were going to do was, like, have a storefront to help fund her commune. <laughs> we were just going to start out with like having people stay like in the apartments because the apartment next to ours was like humongous. It was basically the size of a house. And then my mom also owned the house down the street that we have 
She talked of a thrift store, a clothing store, a tattoo shop, a bodega that sold sheet music and CDs and records. There'd be a stage, no, several stages for music. There'd be a cafe and a garden and beds for the homeless, a soup kitchen, a whole library of books, and a head shop with pipes and bongs and tie-dyed shirts and homemade jewelry, and it would be a commune. Everyone would work, and we, the community, would care for anyone who couldn't. And what the hell, an animal sanctuary too. Create Utopia, she would call it. She painted the name over some vibrant acid art, teeming with greens and oranges on her bedroom door. Utopos, the Greek word for utopia, translates literally to no place. But the first part of that word is also a homophone for the Greek word meaning good. So, utopia is a place that is at once good and non-existent. In 1516, Sir Thomas More transliterated the word from Greek for his work, which he wrote in Latin, Libellus vere aures nec minus salutaris quam festuus de optimo rei publicae statu deque nova insula utopia. What can I say? Back then, Western books were long and highfalutin and written in Latin. But that is the title, and it translates to a truly golden little book, no less beneficial than entertaining, of the best state of the Republic and of the new island, Utopia. It describes a fictional paradise island with no private ownership in which all citizens farm, share communal goods, leave their doors unlocked, and learn at least one essential trade weaving, carpentry, metalworking, or masonry. That is to say, Moore's Utopia is a commune. Critics and historians can't pin down the book's tone, though. Some think the name Utopia was meant to satirize contemporary idealists, whereas others take it to mean, quite earnestly, that we should work toward the good place, even if it is, ultimately, unattainable. The truth, as truths are wont to do, probably lies somewhere between the poles. No placeness and unattainability apply well, I think, to create utopias, clothing, thrift, music store, concert hall, bodega, cafe, garden, hostel, soup kitchen, library, commune, animal shelter thing that would start out as a small-time store and then slowly blossom into... Oh, that's not true. In fact, Joyce always had this crazed urgency in her voice. The process would be slow by no means. Sure, it would start small, but soon enough it would burgeon into this larger-than-life ideal. She believed in it. I did not. And when she brought it up, I would smile, nod, try to look supportive. But the only ideal I strove for at the time was to kill these fucking fleas and go from there. It's 90-some degrees, and here I am, wearing long sleeves and jeans. We stood outside for what felt like hours, smoked two cigarettes each, Probably some weed, too. 
Then we tucked our shirts into our pants and our pants into our socks, and we walked into the entryway. There, a plastic sheet flapped at us over broken windows. I turned the knob and rammed open the stuck door with my shoulder. As I stepped through, it shook and bent, ready to snap from its hinges. For Joyce, this seemed like just another day in the life of a punk idealist in Fleeland. Her mood at once cheery and resigned, ready for work, but also sort of disengaged. The whole affair might have been either an utterly boring adventure or a novel routine. In other words, I couldn't really get a read. Me, though? I was ready to wage war. Bring the flamethrowers and poison gas, the Gatling guns and grenades. Bring the atomic bomb, and I will kill and kill and rid this home of pestilence. First, though, some idle chit-chat. So what's up, I ask. She hums that three-note I don't know song. Do you want me to... Uh... She shrugs. I wait for her to answer. And I wait. And I wait. And then finally... I just walk to the kitchen and return, double-fisting garbage bags. We vacuum. From the apartment to the abandoned storefront downstairs, we haul furniture, clothes, blankets, and other laundry we'll wash later, scalding the little bastards and rinsing away their corpses. The furniture breathes cat piss because Iggy and Frodo were never litter trained. They're monsters, breaking lamps, tearing clothing, swiping at you if you reach for them. We vacuum some more, blanketing the carpet in peroxide and baking soda. Even with our tucked-in, long-sleeved shirts and pants, we feel those sons of bitches feasting on our blood. Yet again, we vacuum. We spray the carpet with lemon juice, rub but don't scratch our legs and hands. Plagues of red balloons flush even our bellies and backs. We're ready to torch this dilapidated piece of shit apartment, ready to bathe and bleach. We'll hack off our limbs to stop the itching, cauterize our flesh with glowing metal because god damn it, that feeling of black specks jumping and biting and clinging to our leg hair, and they're all through the carpet fibers and upholstery, gripping so tight they would stand a vacuum cleaner, laying their fucking eggs everywhere, slurping our blood, feasting on Iggy and Frodo, burrowing deep into their fur, and even when there are no specks, you feel them. Even when we just left the shower and we know there can't be any fleas, we just felt them biting. And I hope to hell there's a hell for these fleas, and I hope I've sent every one of those bastards there. That feeling, that nauseating combination of rage and helplessness and disgust. It was irrepressible. I would look at her bedroom door. Create fucking utopia. I wanted to take an axe to that plank of fantasy grinning stupidly amid this plague. This place was dystopia. Damnation. 
damned with fleas that rushed out through paper-thin walls and unsealed doors and windows in the winter, no air conditioning in the summer. It was all just filth and clutter and a giant hole in the bathroom floor between the tub and the toilet and another one in the hallway ceiling and those wild bastard piss-crazed cats shredding our clothes and furniture, breaking glasses and plates, trying to weasel in on our dinner. Damned, damned, damned. These days, Thomas More's utopia is well known among scholars and, well, pretty much no one else. So how we use the word is quite different from its original coinage in this very important way. Where Moore's utopia was a place that could never exist but was supposed to be the best state of the republic, Americans tend to conflate utopia with paradise, meaning more simply, a perfect place. And the meaning of the word paradise, too, has shifted from its religious connotations of a simple and sacred life to something much more consumerist, much more vain. I don't really know that most American Christians really believe in heaven or Eden, not in any real, sincere way. I mean, they talk about it in churches and at funerals, but in today's quasi-secular America, heaven and Eden describe mortal luxuries, vanities, not holy truths. We're in heaven when we're tanning in the hot sun and stuffing ourselves with lobster and cheesecake. And back in my early 20s, I was in hell when it was hot and my girlfriend's apartment was overrun with fleas. The California coast, Key West, Hawaii, New Zealand, these are all paradise vacations where we go to be waited on, listen to Jimmy Buffett, and drink pina coladas, a simpler existence delivered on the backs of low-wage employees. Then again, maybe this did begin with Thomas More. His utopia was, after all, an island paradise serviced by enslaved criminals and foreigners bound by gold chains treated like domesticated service animals. The chains, as with chamber pots and other shame-tinged items, were crafted in gold to reflect the island's shame at its own wealth, a simultaneous ostentation and self-critique. The paradox of this borders on the absurd, lending credence to the idea that Moore's book was intended to parody the idealism of his contemporaries, while also paying that same idealism serious moral and intellectual attention through loaded symbols of utopian affluence. Promise we'll be right back after this quick message. in our study and discussion of grace in finances. And so let's look again in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, we do you to know of the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, how that in a great trial, of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded unto the riches of their liberality. 
If most American Christians operate under an essentially secularized version of Christianity, Verse four, praying us with much entreaty that we should receive the gift. Joyce's mother is not most Americans. She's a miracle seeker, always waiting for divine intervention to fulfill her wants and needs. I mean that literally. this to the church at Corinth. And he's teaching them concerning grace and financial prosperity. I was like trying to grapple with my mother's whole concept of God and religion, and that she would actually think that angel mechanics would come. She would also tell me that when Joyce was in high school, her mother's car had broken down, wouldn't even start anymore. She couldn't afford to take it to a mechanic right away, but certainly she could have saved up enough over time to take care of it. Instead, she told Joyce about a dream she'd had in which a mechanic would descend from heaven to fix it. A vision, she said. A message from God. She would also tell me that she had heard some story on like Kenneth Copeland, those shows on like the crack of dawn in the morning, the religious shows. In this, we see the will of God being displayed in his word concerning financial prosperity in the life of a believer. Somebody yeah. used some sort of story about like a dog showing up with a bag of money. And she used to like believe in that and she got me to believe in that for the longest in, time. Uh, in, in Corinth. Therefore, as you abound in everything in faith, everything in utterance and knowledge and in all diligence and in your love to us or love for the ministry, see to it that you abound in this grace also. And obvious, they understand that it's the grace of God that has caused them to abound in these things. And around the time when Joyce was in college, her mother began giving her survival gear, wind-up radios, flashlights, candles, wilderness survival books, meals ready to eat, because, she would tell her daughter, Joyce was likely to remain after the rapture and would need food as she faced down the apocalypse. And she got them all vegetarian. I was so proud of her. <laughs> and then she'll get me like compasses and she got me some like emergency candles and she's been buying me like how to survive books. This year I got an edible plants book, like how to identify edible plants. <laughs> this is so much more widespread than I realized. I thought this was like a one-time thing. No, every year she gets me a new thing. I have... To a common onlooker, this might seem dark passive-aggressive. She had, after all, just told her only daughter that God would not accept her, would not take her up for the rapture. How do you think your mom, like... But to Joyce's mom, this belief and this treatment of her daughter the whole, like, was faithful, I don't know how to ask this, compassionate, um, motherly. Like, when she buys you, like, survival gear, <laughs> how do you think she, like perceives that act like does she think of it as like an act of mercy or like kindness or she's being a mother she's just trying okay. to make sure that her daughter has what might help her survive for at least two months 
<laughs> Why does she think you're not going to be taken up in the rapture? Because I'm not a Christian. But I do go to church like... every Sunday. <laughs> so I might get brownie points. I mean, stars so... in my crown. Edit that. <laughs> What's that? I should have said, I go to church every Sunday, and at least I get stars in my crown just in case. My mom always told me my good deeds would earn me a star in my crown in heaven. She believes with a capital B that the capital A apocalypse is coming and that only believers like her will be raptured to heaven by God. To her, all that survival gear is a bulwark against the wicked avarice sure to befall the world in the absence of good Christians. To give her sinful, non-Christian daughter flashlights and MREs and wind-up radios is to bequeath compassion and mercy, to love the sinner despite the sin. And you would think that this behavior and aspect of her mother's religion would be hurtful, or at least a little demoralizing, but if you take out the rapture part of it, the apocalypse that's left actually resonates with Joyce's vision of her own future. I think it's best if I let her explain for herself. I have most of it stashed in my, you know, apocalypse go bag. I put that together in 2012 when I thought the world was ending. Did you really think the world was ending? I had a party. So we had this whole house of people, and I didn't really know any of them yet. Like, this was probably our first big party. I really, truly believe I'm meant to live through the apocalypse and start a new civilization kind of deal. Just something charming about it. And, but that night I went upstairs to my room and got my suitcase and like packed a bag just in case the world was going to end that night. So wait, you, you, are we just talking past tense here? Do you, do you still like think that, um, you're like destined to live through an apocalypse. That's really where, yeah, I think that's my life purpose. I felt so strongly about it, I got a tattoo of Create Utopia, so I never ever forget. Even when I have Alzheimer's, I can read it backwards in the mirror. What What is the tattoo? Like it, uh, so it says Create Utopia, is there anything else to it? Oh, and, and the words are kind of arced, and then in the middle of it, it, says, it has a trouble clef. Music trouble class. But your so your mom though, the, the she envisions the same thing, but thinks, she's looking at the rapture in the Book of Revelations, and she's thinking she's going to be raptured up to heaven, and I'm going to get left behind because I'm not a Christian. <laughs> you can hear the befuddlement in my voice here. I'm struggling to see the essential difference between her mother's belief in the biblical rapture apocalypse and Joyce's belief that she's destined to be a kind of shepherd in the wake of a non-biblical apocalypse with no rapture. How does that, like, make you feel? Mm, I generally laugh at it because, I mean, she's never going to change her mind on how the world is because she's very entrenched in her beliefs and she lives truly by them so I can never judge her and her decision to live that way. Sometimes it makes me sad that 
lucky that I don't have all that much like in common and that sort of outlook and but well I don't know. Regardless. Perhaps the same brand of religiosity that leads Joyce's mother to prepare her daughter for the end of the world. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, the anointed one. Also explains the following. I want to make sure that I have all the details right about like. Joyce's mom was renting the hell apartment to her, but charged her nothing. She didn't actually rent it. She, She just let you live there, right? Yeah, and same with the squatter kids at Paper Street. Which I guess you might say isn't so much renting as lending, but, you know, whatever. And she did this despite having no money to pay the property tax, which finally led the bank to threaten her with foreclosure unless she found the money within a frighteningly short amount of time. Well, I remember you tried to, like, you tried to pay it off by by collecting bottles and cans. Oh, yeah, I was driving in New York anyhow, although that is illegal. I don't recommend doing it. <laughs> There's signs all over those grocery stores that say that if you didn't buy these in New York, like it's a felony or no, maybe not a felony. So, create utopia be damned. Joyce's bottle and can profits would go to the property tax. Her mother, in the meantime, took next to no action, believing that God would sort it all out for her. It's just like the fucking car when I was in high school, she once ranted to me. What does she think? Some fucking angel mechanic is going to drop out of the sky, knock on her door, and fix her fucking car? At the end of her rant, Joyce was laugh crying. Or cry laughing, I'm not really sure. But either way, we ended up getting drunk and stoned and screwing until we passed out. And that's how we dealt with problems back then. In a way, we were no better than Joyce's mom on that front. We didn't understand that we had to actually take action if we wanted to fix or solve or create or make things happen. I didn't see it that way at the time, though. I wanted to talk to Joyce's mother, try to convince her that there would be no angel accountant or miraculous bag of money to save her property, this little sliver of wealth that she had inherited from her father and was now letting slip from her hands, all because of some vision of her life as a modern book of Job. That though he was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor. And you always have to remind yourself again and again that Jesus was never poor a day in his life in his earthly ministry. He was not born to poor folks. He was not. Moore's utopians were more open-minded about religion, far more than I was. Many of them worshipped the moon and other celestial bodies, others worshipped their ancestors, and still others were the one true god types, the monotheists who now dominate the western hemisphere. And these different faiths all lived in harmony. But the utopians were not entirely welcoming.
They would have only begrudgingly tolerated our atheism, privately despising us. They saw lack of religion as disbelief in ultimate consequences for worldly actions. To them, atheists were amoral, hardly a half-notch above immoral. We were lawbreakers, self-servers, threats to the greater community. But even we, lone dissenters from the great gods of pantheistic utopia, would have been welcome, under one condition. We would be mandated to do the reverse of door-to-door -door gospeling. And if you've ever lived near an evangelical or Mormon community, then you know what I mean. Excuse me, sir, but have you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? That kind of thing. Instead of gospelers knocking on our door to win us over, though, we would have had to visit the leaders of all their religions. One of them, at some point, would convince us of our wrongness, our amorality, our law-breakings, our self-servings, and we, ultimately, would have to convert to one of their faiths. The Utopians had a prayer that spanned all religions. If they are mistaken, and if there is ever a better government or a religion more acceptable to God, they implore His goodness to let them know it. The presumption here is that no government, or in our case, no religion, was unacceptable because God, to them, was self-evident, a circular truth that proved the necessity of faith and government and gave the lie to our worldviews. As a couple of godless punks who wanted only to live as good people in an imperfect world that had left us poor and angry in a flea-infested shithole. All utopias are about better religion, better government, better economic systems. Always better by one central ideology. In Moore's utopia, we would have been repressed, and knowing myself at the time, unable to keep my big self-righteous mouth shut, I would have probably ended up bound by gold chains, sweeping the floors of some old church, and emptying golden chamber pots. I'm tempted to muse here about a true utopia, one that would follow a pluralistic, non-judgmental worldview. But ideologies vary, values evolve and contradict each other over time and culture. Consider the American dream, which only in recent decades have we just started to critique for its melting pot ideology of subsuming ethnic identity in exchange for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. White Euro-Americans have alternately forced that dream upon and excluded natives and immigrants from it since we began to dominate the land some 400 years ago. All of that is to say, one's utopia is another's oppression. Now this, I think, is really where no-placeness comes in. Maybe unattainability is only part of the equation. Maybe utopia is unattainable because it's undesirable. Implicit to any utopia is the oppression or exclusion of others. Just about every great society, every supposed good place, grew out of slavery. America, England, Japan, Maya, Egypt, Greece, Rome, every one of them at least began as a slave-driven society. Ideologies against our best intentions oppress freedoms and suppress dissent.
just moved out of the Hell apartment years ago. We broke up later that summer and didn't talk again for about a year or two. But after that, we returned to the close, intimate friendship we had before we started dating. It was only in the process of writing this episode that I finally asked her what ended up happening to the apartment. We gave up. They got foreclosed on. Someone else has bought the property. And after being assholes to us, they have like totally remodeled the places. And it's just how I would have dreamed it to look. Even now, over 10 years later, I think about that door, the one she painted with vibrant acid art and the words create utopia. I imagine it being scarred from years of being packed away and moved with years of thrift store levels of junk. Joyce has something of a hoarder's lust for the slightly damaged, the misfit, the otherwise unwanted, like a bit of whimsy grown from the same root from which her mother's particular brand of religion must have sprouted I think Joyce might see her thrifting, her playing organ for a church she no longer believes in, her redemption of bottles and cans at five cents each to save a crumbling apartment, all as saving small bits of the world. At the time, I loved the romanticism of it all, but I hated the lack of pragmatism. You can't fix the world with half-baked cupcakes and notions of fixing the world by fixing the world because you're going to fix the world, I told her. How, how, what do you mean they were being assholes to you? Oh, on Paper Street, like, they didn't even technically have the right to be there yet. Like, whoever had, like, bought it up, technically they were supposed to be, like, a few months. Like, there's a time frame before they can actually take over the spot, right? And, like, Mom had already cleaned it out. Lord knows what she thought of those places with all the graffiti in the bathroom at Paper Street and shit. It looked like totally a squat house. <laughs> But they had put up these signs that said, like, get off our land, you asshole, or we'll shoot you like you're a squirrel or something weird. Like some sort of threatening post that was like printed out and like stuck on the front door of Paper Street by these people. That's nice. So apparently they're lovely folks who bought them up. I don't know. Not long after the fleas, I talked to my mom about the subject expressing to her that the world is fucked because greed and idiocy outweigh altruism and intellect. My mother is a professor of biology. She knows this imbalance well. Once, the college she works at was clearing ecologically important land and trees for new buildings. She and her class of 20-somethings stood together, some of them crying openly to oppose the paving of plants and animals and habitats, whose existence from the college's business point of view simply did not outweigh the financial gain. And you might expect that years of this sort of disregard for the environment and for other species, coupled with years of inflexible bureaucracy at the college level, would have jaded her. I expected a solemn nod of agreement or commiseration, and she did tell me I was right. In her words, the world is full of destroyers and takers. But when it comes to deciding how to live in and influence the world, she told me that that fact is unimportant. First, what matters is how we live, destroying and taking or creating and giving. And second, what matters is how we influence the people around us, as defeatists or as teachers of critical thought and ethical analysis. What really matters in the end, she says, is what we do in our corners of the world.
Over a decade later, that conversation lives in my bones. The attitude I had cultivated was at best benign, at worst, destructive. Still, to me, utopia is a symbol of ill-conceived, hypocritical idealism rightly critiqued by Thomas More's rendition of it. I don't want to create no place. It already exists. We go no place to escape poverty and avarice. We go no place to escape hunger and gluttony. We go no place to escape the world as it is or as it will be. For about three years, I worked on a small crop farm north of Erie, Pennsylvania, where I learned how to grow food organically, rotating crops to retain the soil and return the nutrients that last year's crops had taken. With the food I earned there, I fed myself, my family, and my friends. In the summer, my fingers black with dirt, my muscles aching. I would dig and things would grow. This is the garden version of paradise, a small way to improve my corner of the world. And today I teach at a private university, preaching the importance of critical thought and ethical analysis, emphasizing humanity's role in the animal kingdom, as well as the roles of non-human animals in the human empire. And here too, I'm trying to fortify the current inhabitants of my corner of the world against the rhetoric and propagandas that drive humanity toward its worst self, that version of itself steeped in cynicism, distrust, and solipsism. In the end, I tell them, your beliefs and your ideologies will not save the world, but your actions might make it a better place. Beastary was produced and edited by Eric Botts. Eric also composed our theme music. Other music in the episode by Elvis Herod, Blue Dot Sessions, The Blind Shake, and Animals and Men, who are also responsible for the song you're hearing right now. All the solo classical piano comes from the one, the only, the absolutely amazing Joyce Kreiner, recorded during her senior recital at SUNY Fredonia in the late 2000s. And this episode featured very brief music clips from The Cramps and Cher, both of which are super short and totally fall under fair use. So please, Cher, Cramps, if you're listening, don't sue us. You can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or whatever app you use to tap into the podcast ether. Our website is bestiarypod.org. You can email Eric at eric at bestiarypod.org. We're on Twitter and Facebook at bestiarypod. I'm Meg Sipis. Thanks for listening. <laughs>